Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm on a boat just leaving Venice. I can just see the Doge's Palace disappearing behind me. I'm going out onto the lagoon to look at some of the defences that have been put up to protect Venice, to try and protect it against rising sea levels. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. Now, I've just come back from Venice. Uh, That's Venice, Italy, not Venice in Los Angeles. And while I was there, a report came out from the World Meteorological Organization on sea level rise and climate change. And it was showing that sea levels are now rising faster than they have for 3,000 years. And the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said this threatens a mass exodus of entire populations on a biblical scale. And that's because so many people, there's almost a billion people who live on coastlines that are threatened by rising sea levels. New Orleans springs to mind immediately. That's, well, it's beneath sea level. And we've already seen damage caused by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And Venice, too, is very much on the front line. So this episode is about that. It's about specific adaptations to sea level rise. And later in the show, I'll be talking with a professor of climate adaptation about sea level rise and about building climate resilience. But first, here's my report from Venice. So I've come to one of the islands out on the lagoon. I can see Venice itself in the distance and in the other direction are the submerged barriers of the Mose defence system. That's a sea barrier of 78 gates, each 20 metres long that can be raised and lowered to protect against flooding. And I've come to what was once a monastery to speak with Ignacio Musu, who's Professor of Environmental Economics at Venice International University. And he has a long involvement with the Mose project. So let's go inside. So the barrier has been operational for two years now. When I looked at the report about it being built, it it mentioned protecting Venice, of course. It didn't really mention climate change or sea level rise. Is it it more about Venice sinking and the the sea coming in, or is it about sea level rise? Both. Traditionally... Uh, Venice has been sinking, in a sense, because the opening of the industrial area of Marghera uh, required a lot of water from the ground, uh, underground, and that produced the subsidence 
And then was the period between the 1950s and 1970s where Venice was in fact sinking about 10 up to 20 centimeters. But then, from then on, the prevalent uh, uh, risk comes from the sea level rise, from mm. climate change. Yeah. And uh, then there was a big debate whether or not these barriers were enough to protect Venice from, from the sea level rise. The project has been prepared to protect Venice from a sea level rise between 60 90 centimeters which is within uh, even the, the most pessimistic forecasts. Okay, that was going to be my next question. It, w- is it enough to save Venice from sea level rise, and at least this century? Or, uh, one century, right? Not, but but then, then there is a problem of protecting the whole northern Adriatic. Well, well exactly, area. exactly. I mean, if you think about the cost of this barrier, how much did it cost in total? <laughs> And they have been costing probably around uh, six at the moment, uh, six billion euros. Six, six billion but, euros but for but the... originally, they ha- had to cost only two billion euros. It's always the way. That was uh, partially a result of inflation, but also partly a result of some uh, corruption in the way the project was being financed. But the problem is also how to co- how, how how maintaining the project will cost, yeah. which is unclear at the moment. I mean, you can understand the government is determined to protect Venice, and maybe the rest of northern Italy here along the coast it can go because we can't afford to build a barrier across no, the but, entire coast. But it is necessary to start thinking what to do with the whole northern Adriatic area uh, since now, because mm. uh, in uh, 50, 60 years, uh, if nothing is being done to change the, the trajectory of climate change and sea level rise, something has to be done in order to... And this must be something different from just building barriers. There is a debate, there is an institution here in Venice which is called the Venetian Institute of Sciences, Letters and Arts, which intends to start the project now precisely on this point. What to do when the sea level rise will be so high that uh, the barriers will be not enough? Mm. But, but for the rest of the coast, people will have to move inland. Well, okay, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's not easy no. because uh, at all this cost depends economically from tourism, which depends heavily on beaches. Yeah. The, and then it is not easy to imagine that they can move inside. <laughs> but what's, what have you learned about what we should do for the rest of the coastline around Italy and the rest of the world? What have you learned about from, from this one project? Uh, from this project, yeah. you only have learned that you can protect particular situations. Mm. But you don't have learned how to protect larger areas. Then you have uh, to uh, consider uh, very, very engaging alternatives like moving people, for example. So. This is a project that can, be, can teach something, and in my personal opinion, uh, the Italian government should, be, should do more 
to build in Venice some structures that allows the international community to learn how a similar project can help. That would be also an alternative or complementary way of considering Venice apart from the artistic uh, value. So, but we don't know if this is going to happen. We hope so. <laughs> that was Ignazio Musu of Venice International University. And thanks, by the way, to them for inviting me over. And what I thought was interesting there was what he said at the end about making Venice a place where people can learn about how to protect coastal cities and learn about the impact of climate change, as well as going there for the culture and for the food and the history and all that. The real takeaway for me was how these sort of projects are only even remotely feasible for places that are considered absolutely vital to uh, to the country's culture and, and well-being, like Venice or like New York. And if you're along the Italian coast from Venice, you know, what, what's going to happen to you there? You, you're going to have to move inland when the sea level rises. And it's the same all over the world. And that's why trying to limit sea level rise as much as possible is obviously what we should be doing. So to talk about this, I'm joined by Svenja Saminski. Svenja is Professor in Practice at the Grantham Research Institute at the London School of Economics. And she's Managing Director for Climate and Sustainability at Marsh McLennan. She was appointed to the UK's Committee on Climate Change, the Adaptation Committee, last year. Uh, welcome back to the pod, Svenja. Um, what, what is a professor in practice, by the way? Well, I have been doing a lot of research, but very applied research. So that professor in practice role really recognises that um, we engage you know, with policymakers, with industry, with stakeholders, and apply our research knowledge to these challenges. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So look, we've been hearing about Venice. What can we learn from the Mose project in Venice for adaptation more generally? Well, I think adaptation has become a much better understood concept and projects such as the, the Mose in, in Venice bring this home of what adaptation actually is and how it looks like, because for mm. a lot of people, it still remains quite abstract. The key point is we understand the climate is changing. The longer we wait, the more expensive it will be to adapt to it. So we also know that there is a huge adaptation finance gap. I mean, there are significant sums of money that will need to be invested 
in projects such as the Mose in Venice, but also just making sure our infrastructure is going to be able to cope with climate change. I mean, some estimates said that we need to spend globally around $300 billion by 2030 on adaptation. And that money is not flowing yet. So I think the key point there is to build on this awareness, to take advantage of this growing awareness and also sort of take advantage of initiatives such as the UN's Race to Resilience and then translate that into concrete action. And by concrete action, I think the real key point there is to make sure that whatever we do is sort of forward-looking but also smartly designed. Too long we've had big projects that were just kind of trying to keep the water away and blocking it and, you know, sort of this concrete solutions. Now, we need to work with nature. We need to consider, you know, what the social implications are. We really need to be smart about these large-scale projects. And I think that's what ultimately adaptation is about. But at the moment, you know, there are not enough incentives to actually get us to take action now. So awareness is there. Finance is starting to flow. But still, we see this often as a long-term challenge and, and don't take action now. Yeah, because these are long-term projects, aren't they? I mean, the Venice project has taken decades to get working. It's only that barrier system's only been running up and running for two years now. There's a um, a plan to build a barrier around New York Harbour. The costs of that range from $55 billion to $120 billion, and it, that's going to take over a decade it won't even start until 2030 if it gets signed off and it feels like if there are like I was saying before if there's an area of really high perceived value like New York City or Venice or Rotterdam then you know you get governments willing to even think you know in long term but in other senses they're not really thinking long term are they I mean from what you're saying that there hasn't really been there isn't enough long-term thinking in finance policy is there well I mean I think we have certainly growing awareness of the challenge. And I think, you know, recent events, you know, if you just look back at the last year, you know, that really brings it home that climate change is is happening to us. I think that has changed the way that a lot of governments, a lot of organizations are starting to approach the topic. But turning that and translating that into action, that's another challenge. And I guess this, in a way, is is really, you know, the core of the problem, you know, climate change amplifies, you know, existing problems and interacts with other issues. And it's not a sort of standalone aspect that you can deal with by, you know, just designing another concrete barrier. There are lots of things that climate change will make worse, inequality, poverty, and uncontrolled development and building practices, you know, they all sort of create this really complex mix. And I think this is the point where that long-term thinking becomes so crucial. And sometimes we get accused of, well, admiring the problem and saying, oh, this is all getting increasingly complex. But, you know, unless we actually start addressing the underlying symptoms of this properly, we're going to lose lose that fight against water. Because, you know, if there are continue to be growing concentrations of people and assets in flood-prone areas, we will come to a point where we can't protect these areas. And I think that slowly starts to sink in, but it hasn't really translated into action yet. Yeah, you mentioned um, the amplification of problems and one that the scientist I was speaking 
um, within Venice was talking about was that, you know, the whole of the northeast of Italy there, it's, it's all dependent on tourism for tourists going to the beaches. But he was saying, we might well not have beaches soon. And all the people living there are going to have to migrate inland. So there's this double whammy of the the loss of income from tourism and this huge social and financial cost of a relocation. So it's a threat multiplier, isn't it? Yeah, and I think this just underlines why we really need to have also a systems approach to this challenge. I mean, if you take nature as an example, you know, nature loss is a big driver of flood risk. You look at a lot of coastal areas, you know, they are much more vulnerable because there's not no longer an intact system of, you know, coral reefs, mangroves, you know, we have coastal erosion. Also, drought makes the risk worse. And, you know, these impacts, they can cascade through our system and we we can't really ignore that interplay. So that's understanding the drivers and causes. But then think through how this interacts with, for example, your development strategy. So, you know, if you are a region or a city or community that depends on, on fishing, that depends on tourism, that depends on certain industries and segments that are highly exposed, you really need to think through, you know, what a systemic approach is. You know, I think there are some interesting examples where you suddenly can take a view of, you know, there are co-benefits of taking early actions. You can mobilize also investors and businesses. We see this, for example, around coral reefs where suddenly there's recognition, you know, if we all sort of team together and invest in coral reefs, there are massive benefits in protecting, you know, our coastal areas. But, you know, that's early days, but there are some really interesting case studies coming out and pilots. And I think if we can take that to the next level, then a lot of regions can can benefit from that. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that you're managing director for climate and sustainability at Marsh McLennan, and that's an insurance company. And I wondered about the insurance industry. I mean, because it's it's cold hard cash for them. I, I wondered if they are doing much. You know, they, there's some good examples of long term thinking and investment there. Well, in in my role at uh, Marsh McLennan, we work on exactly this question a lot. In fact, we're launching a new report on this idea of having a systemic response to flat risk in changing climate. We're launching that shortly. And I think what we're really trying to to bring home is, you know, society needs to understand that not everyone can be protected, not everyone can be insured or bailed out. At the moment, you know, there are just too many inefficiencies in our system, too many incentives that sort of prevent us from becoming more resilient. And I think that's a really important point. The good thing is, the insurance sector, but also the financial sector has now better tools, better data, better understanding. And we're trying to turn this into, you know, sort of a a way to then engage with governments, with companies to actually say, let's avoid a false sense of security. You can't just rely on having insurance or you can't just rely on having a flood wall. We need to start live with floods have strategic protection, but also prepare for relocation. And, you know, I think it's, again, it's starting. There's some promising innovation, but there's also still a lot of inertia. And, you know, the insurance sector needs to see this also as an, yeah, as a tool 
to mobilize and to then make sure that the future insurance markets are actually available um, for those regions. So what's the mood like amongst you and your colleagues? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it is quite sobering when you consider, you know, recent events and it brings it home, you know, the challenge is becoming real. Also, the science and the projections, we know that under a two degree warming world, the number of urban areas of infrastructure at risk of flooding is going to double. So, you know, that is quite, quite sobering and it creates that urgency, the, the drive for, for more action. I think what I find inspiring and motivating is, is the innovation and is the, the fact that we have a better understanding of, you know, how nature can become part in our solutions, how we can actually work across government scales. We can work with cities on this. And there are some really promising examples. But yeah, I think the urgency, that's kind of the key, the key mm. driver in this. Swenja, what about relocation and the, thinking about the, the huge challenges of relocation, financial and social? What's going on there? Well, the, the first thing is we need to recognize that in high-risk locations along the coast, it will not be financially or technically feasible to you know, accommodate floods or build protection. So we really need to be transparent and upfront on that. Planned relocation of people and assets can actually offer, you know, more sustainable, economically efficient and also, you know, fair way of adapting to climate. The challenge is it really needs to be planned through in advance and there also need to be the right, you know, financial mechanisms and incentives. And, you know, at the moment, what we see is a bit like trial and error and very often unplanned relocation. And that can create huge disruptions to communities you know, this can be very unfair. And, you know, I mean, it. there are often a lot of challenges with it. So what's happening, for example, in New Zealand is that the government is now sort of setting out guidance and legislation on how you actually undertake these sort of managed retreat or planned relocation efforts. And I think that's a really important, you know, step, because nobody really likes, likes this. It all often looks as if this is the last resort and particularly politicians can easily get into a real difficult um, setup. There are lots of trade-offs, you know, who makes the decision, when to move, where to move, who to move. You know, it is a really complex setup. So we need guidelines and we also need to make sure that it's been done in a fair, but also in a financially sort of effective way. And yeah, planning this now while we still can is important because of, at the end of the day, in a few decades, we will be having to, to undertake relocations in many um, parts of the world. And what would you like to be done now in terms of adaptation research and investment? And also, what can normal people do if they're worried? I mean, they should be worried, shouldn't they? What can normal people do? Well, there there is a lot that can be done right now, I think, in terms of investment and commitments and overcoming, you know, these the failure to have the right policy signals. So just last week, the Committee on Climate Change here in the UK published a report on financing adaptation, you know, and adaptation as an investment opportunity. And they're really clear recommendations to sort of send the right signals to the financial sector, but also to regulators to enable actually 
businesses and to also force them to become more resilient. So that's kind of one element. But I think individuals also need to understand that, you know, I think in a way we've been living also with a false sense of security. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we, we need to have a better risk culture that also understand what our own roles and responsibilities are. I mean, a very simple example is when it rains, I know that our drainage systems are often not coping and drains get clogged up. And, you know, it's a simple step. I get out and I clear the drains. I mean, that is a very simple, small scale thing. But often people would think, well, it's someone else's duty to do that. So, you know, it's, it starts at that level and then it goes all the way to thinking about relocation and avoiding us you know, making things worse by building in the wrong place. That was Svenja Siminski of the Grantham Research Institute at the London School of Economics. And before that was Ignacio Musu of Venice International University. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of New Scientist Weekly. Do subscribe and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.